Welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Bookshop Podcast. I'm Mandy Jackson-Beverly. Join me as I speak with authors and other guests who specialize in subjects dear to my heart, the humanities and our environment. To help the show reach more people, please consider sharing with friends and family and on social media. And remember to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast. You're listening to episode 141. Abigail Wynne Rosewood is a Vietnamese and American writer and the author of If I Had Two Lives from Europa Editions and Constellations of Eve, the inaugural title from DVAN slash TTUP, a publishing imprint founded by Isabel Thuy Pelau, a scholar of Asian American history and literature, and Pulitzer Prize winner Viet Thanh Nguyen to promote Vietnamese American literature. Abigail holds an MFA in creative writing from Columbia University, and after having spent 20 years in the U.S., she is now a reverse immigrant living in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. Her works can be found in Time Magazine, Harper's Bazaar, Salon, Cosmopolitan, Lit Hub, Electric Lit, Catapult, Pen America, and Bomb, among others. In 2019, her hybrid writing was featured in a multimedia art and poetry exhibit at Eccles Gallery. Her fiction has been nominated for the Pushcart Prize, Best of the Net, and Best American Short Story 2020, and was a finalist for the 49th New Millennium Writing Award. She won first place in the Writers' Workshop of Asheville Literary Fiction Contest. Abigail currently serves on the Graduating Thesis Committee at Columbia University. She is the founder of Neon Door, an immersive art exhibit. Hi, Abigail, and welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much, Mandy. Um, I'm really glad to be here. Thank you. Abigail, there are many questions I have for you regarding your latest novel, Constellations of Eve, your virtual reality magazine, Neon Door, and your decision to relocate back to Vietnam after living in the United States for 20 years. But let's begin with Constellations of Eve, which explores the three deviations of Eve, Liam and Paris, and how the stories of our lives change depending on what we choose regarding who we love and how we decide what to live for. When did the idea for the story formulate, and did it arrive as a singular image of Eve, or did you see the multiple versions of her life emerge together? Um, that's a really good question. So I started writing Constellations of Eve a few years ago, and it was kind of around a time where my relationship with my husband was at a, a, I think, at a crossroad, a very difficult stage. And so I think the novel kind of unfolded um, in fragments as I was trying to think about all the what if scenarios. I think the thing you, the things you sort of do when you love somebody, and you're like, you know, if we do this what would happen if we stay together, what would happen if we make this decision, you know, what would happen to us? And so I think I was trying to deal with my own pain in my relationship through fiction and to give myself some of those answers. So they, so the story didn't, didn't occur chronologically but it was more fragmentary in, in kind of like puzzle pieces because I was trying to figure out my own relationship as well. I love the way the humanities, the arts, help us work through inner challenges. 
while working on an exterior piece of work. Now, how did Paris' character appear? And did you always see the doll at the root of her character? This, of course, won't make sense for a lot of people until they've read the story, which I highly recommend. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. That's such an insightful question. Um, I actually, yeah, I wonder why you're most interested in sort of the doll. It's sort of the thing that came last. In a way, it was kind of, to me, a scary image to kind of distill somebody's personality down to this very cold, hard, perfect thing. And I I wanted to, in a way, horrify with something that's really beautiful. Um, and at the same time, as you read in the story, the doll was also uh, a companion to Eve, the character, and she really she got a lot out of it and was kind of a defensive mechanism against bullying and all these other struggles that she had. So it wasn't something, um, I didn't always see the doll at the, at the root of, of her character, I think not consciously anyway, but I think by the time that I got there, it made sense to me. But I wonder what, why did you see that? <laughs> I guess because when I read that part in the book, everything came together for me. Similar to when you put a net in the ocean or a river, and when you lift it out of the water, all that's left in the net are specific solid pieces. In essence, the net, for me, was like the doll. It brought everything together. And also that scene took me back to my childhood when I was a little girl, about three. We lived in a remote little town in Australia. And sometimes my parents used to take us out to visit our kind of pretend aunt and uncle. And they had a really old building on their farm and we used to go in there. And it was at one stage an old homestead. And in one of the rooms there was an old trunk. And I remember opening the trunk and there were these old dolls, like porcelain dolls, really old. Their clothing was all worn. And your book took me back to that image immediately. The dolls used to make me feel at home. And I've written about them because of that. It was just a sense of calm, the sense of being able to be who I wanted to be. They made me feel safe. And I think this is the magic of reading because it can transport us back to a moment in our life or experience the life of another through words. It's a form of magic, I guess. Yeah, it's totally transporting. But thank you so much for sharing sharing that memory. That's that's so beautiful that you had this connection and and that you can see that in your own mind. And I feel like in a way when you're reading, it's like you're constructing your own story as well. It's, you know, I might, I could be describing in detail a room or a trunk, but what you saw was your own trunk and the dolls that you had a connection with. So that's quite beautiful. And in so many ways, storytelling is both deconstructing and reconstructing. Now, one of the central characters in Constellations of Eve is art. What is your relationship with the visual arts? And do you feel there is little separation between the literary and visual arts? That's such a good question. Um, yes, I, yeah, I agree. Like, I totally intended art to be one of the main characters. Um, and in a way, I felt like Paris is that kind of manifestation, personification of 
art in the sense that it becomes an obsession, a topic that both you are both riveted by, but also, um, but can also destroy you at the same time. It gives you something and yet it takes so much from you. And I feel like that's kind of, kind of I'm in an arena with, with capitalized art and I'm wrestling with this kind of, this beautiful demon. And so that's what I, that's, that you very insightfully pointed out that the central character is art. Um, I, I think I'm a, for, I think I'm a fairly visual person in the sense that I get a lot of inspirations from paintings, um, looking at colors, you know, one of the characters name is blue. And I felt like the color was very visceral in terms of melancholia, like immediately just hearing that. And I feel like washed over with, with blueness um, and like the waves and, you know, of blue. Um, I don't, I don't think that there is any separation between anything and anything actually between, you know, science and the arts or, you know, math and music um, and definitely very little separation between visual arts and literary art. Um, I think they're constantly working together. And when I have seen like some of the um, writing or read, you know, certain writing on like physics or uh, it's so beautiful to me that it almost, you know, it, it's like art in that sense. Yes, I completely agree. And coming from an educational and creative background, I truly believe you can't separate the arts from STEM subjects, uh, math and music, art and writing, theater. I mean, you just can't. It, it makes the whole being. In essence, we're doing humanity a disservice by dropping any of these subjects out of the school curriculums. Now, in the opening of Constellations of Eve is the Cards Waltz. This scene is riveting and beautifully sets up the rest of the story. In many ways, it feels like a dream. Did you write the book in sequence or as the images appeared to you, putting them together like a jigsaw puzzle? I'm often astonished when I speak to writers and they say they wrote the whole book from beginning to end. That's never happened to me. That's never happened. I can't do that. Yeah, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about this idea. Sure. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up because... Um, you know, that scene is the first scene in the novel, but it was actually written last. <laughs> it was, it, it was, you know, like the final thing that pulled, that pulled the whole thing together um, for me. And, and once I wrote it, I understood why I wrote it. But I was also really afraid that it was going to be a turn off um, for many readers because it started off. So I don't know, I, I you know, in my mind, it's not um, it's not depressing, but I I worry that some people mind uh, might find it, you know, depressing. Um, but at the same time, for me, it was actually very hopeful to start with kind of a death and a non-death, um, being and non-being, and to always kind of titter on that uncomfortable line, um, and so. I yeah so I I wrote that scene last but if you ask me like which pieces 
of the novels, I, I, you know, in order now, I couldn't tell you which I had written first. I'm fascinated that you wrote that part last, because after I'd finished the book, I actually went back and reread it and kind of gave a little sigh. <laughs> okay, so let's move on to Neon Door, your virtual reality magazine. What was the impetus behind creating this website, which, by the way, is absolutely stunning? Sure. Um, so, you know, Neon Door is kind of has like immersive elements, and I, I started. Uh, I started it really in, you know, during the middle of the pandemic because I just wanted to do something. Um, I had the time and, you know, I wanted to keep, um, keep in touch with my friends who, you know, are artists and writers as well. And, and I knew that we were all sort of searching for something. And, uh, and so, but the more I kind of looked into it, I, I wanted something that was different from my own publishing experience, like having, you know, submitted to many literary magazines, gone through a lot of rejections, and then later, you know, as an author, gotten an agent and, and, and also went through a lot of rejections with that. And maybe if I was in business, I would understand it better, but I didn't quite understand the kind of unanimous taste in pub in the publishing industry. And, you know, when you submit a piece of art, you have to have 15 people that agree on it, which to me is absurd. And so I wanted to create something where trust is fundamental to the whole organization and every single editor um, has complete control, like, you know, over if they choose it, I'm not going to question it. There's no editor in chief. We're all equal. Um, so it's a true collaboration in that sense. So philosophically, I wanted to do that. And then I guess in the artistic sense, I am curious by, you know, sort of uh, that intersection between immersive technology and storytelling. I, I admit I don't quite understand it yet. There's so much going on and so much new things. Um, and I think that's why I'm doing it so that I can understand it better. And I'm so excited by it. <laughs> and that excitement shows. I was interested in how you decide which creatives to have on Neon Door. I listened to the musician who you have on the site. Daphne Gale. Yeah, she is a talented young lady. Oh, thank you. I'll let her know. Oh, that's so sweet. And how did Daphne come to be on the site? Is there a submission process? We did have a submission process in that we put out a lot of calls like through writing programs or whatever we advertised. And it was literally just sending out emails um, and trying to get a lot of submissions. And I had, you know, all the editors are in different genres. So uh, Mark Chu was the editor for music. And so they they made all those choices. You know, we discuss it as a group, but ultimately all the editors made their own decision. So yeah, that's how we found all the artists. Abigail, after I read your essay in Time Magazine titled, I Moved to America for a Better Life, Here's Why I'm Leaving, I definitely felt a tug at my soul. When we're born in one country and live a large part of our lives in another, the yearning to be on the soil where we were born is challenging and haunting. 
What were your reasons for moving back to Vietnam? So um, I'm on the East Coast right now, just tying up some loose ends and putting things away. And then in a really um, a few weeks, I'm going to head to Vietnam permanently. And I think your description of saying that is challenging and haunting is just so accurate. Because I think in many ways, Vietnam has haunted me for so long because I have left for over 20 years. And so it's almost becoming like a mythologized, um, you know, place. It's like a fairy tale to me with like no clear grasp anymore. Um, I don't know if you have that same experience. Yeah, I do. And that's a perfect analogy. In some ways, I feel... The kind of motivation was finding out that I'm pregnant. <laughs> yes, congratulations. Thank you. That really motivated me to go back. And I, I think part of it is almost intuitive. I needed to reconnect something that been kind of like severed in me. And I and it's it's not really until my until lately that I've sort of looked to the past. Um, for advice and and guidance on really how to live and and I feel like I need to be there for that and and I as a as a soon-to-be mother um, there's so much about Vietnam that I can't teach on my own that I just need to immerse my daughter in the environment I read a long time ago that uh, the isotopes in your teeth is formed by the environment that you grow up in so there's just so much about like the you know the dna that gets influenced that we don't even know about these intangible things i don't know if you know my isotopes is probably you know in my teeth is probably formed from vietnam a long time ago it's such a weird thought to have even having been away for so long but i think that's my makeup right and and i want my i want my daughter to have that also I hear you. And I equate the feeling of nostalgia about living away from the country where you were born like this. My father has been gone for 27 years. And I sometimes get sad because I'm worried I'm going to forget his voice or what he looks like. That's why I have pictures and photographs of my parents and relatives around my office. You can see some behind me. Uh, now, my mother passed away six years ago, so she's still kind of fresh in my memory. But I worry sometimes that I'm going to forget the smell of the area where I grew up or the sound of thunder rolling across the hills and how the earth smells in the paddocks after rain. In some ways, I think the earth where we were born holds our memories. And I'm not saying that every memory of living in Australia is a good one. Far from it. And I've no doubt that in many ways, if we were to move back to Australia, my life would be a lot easier, certainly financially easier. I still find that whenever I get off the plane in Australia, and I haven't been back for a few years, but I used to run directly from the plane through customs and immigration, and then I would immediately run to an airport cafe, which is one of the worst things you can do, right? So I would go there and I would get either scrambled eggs on toast, because I love the way Australian scrambled eggs and a coffee. Or I would get this sandwich that was from my childhood, two pieces of white bread with a cheese slice in between and butter. Nothing that I would eat here. 
but it just grounded me in some way. It took me back to my childhood, and it's like I want to remind my soul where I am back home. Yes, that's yes. So, so that your soul knows that's what it is. And I, yeah, I love, I love that you you get this like bread with cheese. That's that's so endearing, and and but I absolutely understand it. I think I I do the same. And even like what you were saying, like, you know, not all memories are good ones. And, you know, arriving there in Australia for you might probably will, you will encounter discomfort as well. But even your soul like wants that too. Yes, we crave the good and the bad, right? Now, has the increase in Asian hate-related crimes affected your decision to become a reverse immigrant? Yes, definitely, definitely. I think, you know, a lot of times I try to not let the news get to me too much. But, you know, New York City, it just didn't, I think for now it didn't feel like a family-oriented place. Yeah, and so I definitely, I definitely wanted to be in an environment where I didn't look other and just, you know, for once, like not, not really stand out. <laughs> I find it both tragic and sickening that these hate crimes are happening. And as much as it makes me sad that we will lose creatives like you if this keeps happening, I completely understand your need to keep yourself and your new child safe. And this seems like a good segue into the publishers behind Constellations of Eve. Can you share a little about the publishing company with us, please? Sure. So the book is the... Uh, first title in a partnership between the Diasporic Vietnamese Artist Network and Texas Tech University Press. And uh, it's, it's a, an effort to um, promote Vietnamese American writers or uh, Vietnamese or writers from the diaspora. And so I think I was just really lucky that when they put out the call for submission and I sort of was just looking around and saw it. My book has been on submission for a year and a half already to multiple publishers. And it was actually around that time that we started hearing back, like finally hearing back either yes or no. And, you know, as expected, it's mostly rejections. And so uh, I think my, so my agent submitted my manuscript to them and once they accepted it um, like I knew right away that it was definitely something somewhere I wanted to be with and that I felt really safe. And, and I can't say that with all publishing experiences, you know, big and small, I felt, I felt so safe. And I felt that, that at least there's a baseline that I wasn't going to be exoticized, that I was going to just be treated as any other author. And so that was, that was really a great experience for me. And I'm, I'm very grateful for all the people involved, um, you know, to Isabel, to Viet, to Viet Thanh Nguyen, to my editor, Travis Snyder. I think he's the one that was heavily involved in creating the partnership or making it happen. So, um, yeah, I'm very grateful for that. And in the same vein, do you feel American publishers do enough to support Vietnamese writers? That's a really tough question because like what is enough, you know? So I think 
you know, my, my simple answer is no, but I think I don't even think that publishers do enough in general for indie authors or minority authors, or, you know, I think that's why like your podcasts or like, you know, university presses and like other indie presses are, they're the, they're the people with like the heart and soul in this journey and, 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 and I don't think, and the people that are not doing it just for financial reasons. And those are the, the people that, that I sort of have like a more of an inherent trust in, even if in um, the fact that they're attempting to. Whereas with big publishers, you know, as the conversations evolve in the news and there's more demands for minority authors and I feel like they're scrambling to kind of fulfill quotas, but there's something that I distrust about that kind of like quick turnaround and just like, oh, just do this so that we look good for now. Um, so there's something I think is good, a, a good start. It's a good start. Yes, it is a good start. But my word, we have a long way to go. Abigail, it's been lovely chatting with you. You're a sweetheart. And thank you again for writing such a, an absolutely beautiful book, Constellations of Eve. Oh, thank you so much, Mandy. And I wish you continued success with your writing. This has been such a pleasure to talk to you. And yeah, you just have such a warm and welcoming presence. I, I'm, I'm always quite nervous at these things, but uh, you put me at ease. So thank you. You've been listening to my conversation with author Abigail Wynne Rosewood. Make sure to follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Mandy Jackson Beverly. And check out my website at mandyjacksonbeverly.com. And if you'd like to contribute to the coffee fund, go to www.patreon.com forward slash the bookshop podcast and become a patron of the show. For just a few dollars a month, you get behind the scenes videos and your contributions support the production and editing costs of the show. For information regarding sponsoring an episode, email thebookshoppodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Theme music provided by Brian Beverly.